All yours, brother. That's grand. So, quick little recap. Uh, we started the course looking at some arguments uh, for the existence of God and deconstructing a couple of arguments against God's existence uh, from the reality of evil. Uh, and then after two weeks, we moved on. And last week, we looked at uh, basically the historical reliability of the four Gospels uh, in our New Testaments and um, looked at the questions of who wrote what, when, what, what are the sources of information in the Gospels, and uh, do we have now in our Bibles something that represents accurately, if not 100%, but very high uh, percentage accuracy, uh, what was originally uh, written, and um, basically answering those kind of questions uh, in the positive. And, uh, this week I'm going to move on to uh, an overview of the approach to arguing for a Christian understanding of Jesus um, that I take in my uh, soon-to-be-out book, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. And it's called Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment uh, because there are five uh, different arguments given in the book for understanding Jesus the Christian way. Uh, five arguments in what's called a cumulative uh, case. Um, and one will obviously uh, find those arguments more compelling if you're approaching them with a belief in some kind of a God already in hand, and you'll find the arguments less compelling if you're approaching those arguments as an atheist. Um, if you're an atheist, then, uh, and you approach these arguments, at least part of their strength would have to go into convincing you that it was sensible to believe that there was a God that Jesus could have been. Whereas if you already think there is a God, then all of the strength of these arguments would go into answering the question, well, is it reasonable to think that Jesus was this God? Um, let me illustrate that with uh, thinking about the resurrection, which we'll look at later. And because I've got five different arguments, well, I'll actually break things up a little differently this week. And I'll um, stop every now and again after I've done a sort of little section for a little time of question, and then do another section, and then a little question time, and so on as we go through. So you don't have to keep in the back burner of your mind the arguments as we go through. This is a sort of um, preface to say you can break down the sort of uh, moves that people go through in considering Jesus into a number of categories here we've got in these boxes. First off is the worldview that they bring with them to the, to the table, as it were. Are they an atheist? Are they an agnostic? Are they someone who believes in some kind of a being out there, but they're not quite sure what, and so on. Then there are uh, criteria by which you make judgments about things, sort of rules of thumb for how you know stuff. Then there would be the, what we could call the data, the things that we could, uh, in conversation with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, agree upon with them uh, as data that's relevant to the discussion. And then finally the explanation that we give to that data. Uh, and it might be that you get agreement on several of these things, but it doesn't lead to agreement on the explanation. But I would have thought that you're much more likely to arrive at the same explanation of the same data if you're using the same 
rules about how to arrive at explanations and arrive at what you think data is, and you're starting off from the same worldview picture. Um, so in talking about Jesus, one of the immediate judgments is, is one starting sort of too far forward, as it were, and someone's problems, intellectually speaking, with the Christian view of Jesus are really more fundamental than what's the historical evidence, say. Do they have difficulties with the Christian understanding of Jesus because they have um, a particular way of approaching what counts as, as good evidence for a truth claim that you're differing about or because they are assuming, well, there isn't a God and there can't be miracles and so on. So if someone's an atheist, among their criteria of what makes for a sensible explanation of things might very well be some rule along the lines of, well, don't ever appeal to a miracle in order to explain anything, because that's stupid, because miracles can't happen because there's no God that could work them. And so when you then approach the data, however good that historical data for Jesus is, from this viewpoint, you're going to be forced to say, well, even if I don't know what happened to Jesus' body on the third day, it certainly couldn't have been a miracle, so it must have been some sort of um, deceit or delusion. If, of course, you approach exactly the same data with a belief in some kind of a God who could work miracles in hand, amongst your criteria of how to explain things might be some rule that at some point, in certain situations at least, it might be sensible to explain things in terms of a miracle. And then, looking at the data, you might very well conclude that resurrection and genuine miracle was the best explanation of things. And I kind of laid that out at the beginning of the book, which is addressed to uh, non-Christian readership, and just kind of ask people to assess where they are, what do they believe as, about things as they're coming to the table already, and to kind of keep track as the book goes on of the effect on their uh, prior beliefs of the new information that's coming in. And that's part of what's called a cumulative case. I'm giving a cumulative case for Jesus' deity. It's like the kind of argument that you get in a court of law we have various different bits of evidence, different bits of testimony and so on, that together uh, warrant uh, the jury making a certain decision. Um, whereby it might not be the case that any individual bit of evidence that you look at is strong enough on its own to say, yes, they were guilty of the crime. But nevertheless, bits of evidence taken together where none of them individually would point to a conviction, when taken together can point to a conviction, uh, so long as those bits of evidence have um, some uh, warrant or reliability in and of themselves, of course. So by the time that I've gone through the paradox thrown up by Jesus' self-image in the context of his character, and then his miracles as a class of his deeds that uh, sharpen that paradox and give independent testimony about who he might very well be. And his resurrection from the dead is a particularly significant miracle. And his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies at very long odds. 
and contemporary religious experience of various kinds centred around Jesus, the cumulative weight of all of these bits of evidence, particularly if you approach them without a dogmatic commitment to an atheistic worldview already in hand, might very well be enough to kind of tip the balance in favour of the Christian view of things, as it were. Um, So as you're going through, I mean, this is... um, a fairly sort of simplified representation, but supposing here we have three people, all of whom start out not believing in the Christian view of Jesus. Um, They all think it's below half probability, below 50-50 probability that Jesus is who Christians think he was. But this person's a theist, this person's an agnostic, and this person's an atheist. So you can see the atheist thinks it's a lot less likely that Jesus is who Christians think he was than the theist might do. Because, of course, the atheist is going to say, well, no one could be God, because there isn't a God. The agnostic is going to say, well, I suppose someone could be God because there might be a God. The theist is going to say, well, I know there is a God, but I'm not yet convinced that this particular person is God's self-revelation. Show me the evidence. And if they make their way through these five ways, I'm calling them that in a bit, in aping Thomas Aquinas' famous five ways for arguing for God. And here you can see they all agree on exactly the the same strength of the evidence. So here the atheist meets the first one, and they say, okay, that first argument, it doesn't convince me that Jesus is God. I've not gone over the 50-50 line here. But I am now slightly more open to that idea. But some of my scepticism, as it were, has been soaked up by that argument because I see that it has some strength to it, just not enough to convince me. But by the time you've gone through a series of two, three, four, five arguments, where do you end up? And that's the kind of framing that I give to these issues. So before I just go on to the first way. Does anyone want to raise any questions or clarifications or whatever about that sort of general framework approach to the issue? Grand, I must be speaking with crystal clarity, which is always good to know. Okay, here's the first way. Jesus' self-identity often summarised as the uh, lunatic, liar, lord argument, because it alliterates nicely at three points, so uh, at least in Baptist circles, that's what we we like our sermons to alliterate and have three points. Um, It's been put, it has quite a long history, this this argument, it has a Latin name, which I won't go into, but uh, this is uh, Professor John Duncan, who was a Scotsman, from the 18th, 19th century. And he said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and deceived or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma, like the word dilemma, but here you've got three choices rather than than two. Of course, this argument only works on the assumption that Jesus did claim to be divine. Now, given that Jesus did claim 
to be divine, particularly the kind of divinity claim he's making in the social context that he's making it, either that claim is true or it's false. Now, if it's true, then he is who he said he was. If it's false, there are two ways of it being false. Either he sincerely made those claims to divinity, but was wrong about it, so the guy falsely but sincerely believes he's divine, in which case he's a fruitcake, or he wasn't sincere, he was insincere in issuing those claims to divinity, in which case he's a blaspheming liar. Now, of course, the the argument would try to eliminate the lunatic liar options, or at least make them seem as implausible as possible in order to raise the plausibility of the Lord option. Uh, Mark Mittelberg um, passes this comment. He says, the common claim today, of course, is that belief in Jesus as a unique divine person arose long after he'd walked on earth. So most people today respond to this kind of argument by saying, no, of course Jesus didn't claim to be divine. That was something foisted upon him much later by the church, by the Christian community and so on. Such books as The Da Vinci Code have popularized the notion that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea, uh, three centuries after Jesus, it was 325 AD, that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God, Yet, as it turns out, the best historical scholarship shows that this is simply not the case. Um, But this is nonetheless a very popular view that's out there that you're bound to come across. Here's a quote from the Da Vinci Code of Professor Teabing. It says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the Son of God, asked another character. Right, Teabing said, Jesus' establishment of the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that would have been, which is a load of poppycock, but influential poppycock. In trying to get the right data about Jesus' self-identity, the claims that he made for himself, you could look at um, direct evidence of his claims, but also, interestingly, I think it's interesting to look at indirect evidence for those claims and I'll spend most time here looking at some indirect evidence by looking at the beliefs of early, early, early Christianity Uh, this is a fascinating wall painting Um, it's been dated to about 235 AD so 100 years before the Council of Nicaea and it's the earliest known pictorial representation of Jesus is this figure here. Now, the figure standing over a man on a bed. Next to picture of a man carrying his bed. Does this ring any bells for anyone? Someone on a bed and then carrying a bed and a figure standing over them with his hand uh, outstretched. Well, it is, of course, a reference, once you know passages uh, like the passage in Mark 2, where Jesus heals the, the, the paralytic who is carried by his friends and dropped through the, the uh, torn-apart roof of the house. 
And in that story, of course, it's one of the really significant incidents of Jesus laying claim implicitly to divinity because Jesus says to the guy, I, you know, I forgive your sins. On, on his personal authority, he assures him that his sins are forgiven. And uh, those there, the teachers of the law, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, if you do something to me, it makes sense for me to say, oh, I forgive you. But if you do something to the person next to you here, and I came up to you and said, you know, don't worry about it, I'll take care of this, you're forgiven. Who does this guy think he is? Um, the only person who is at the, uh, the butt end of all sin is God. God's the only person in a position to forgive all sin. So it's very interesting that you have this wall painting, the earliest representation of Jesus is clearly representing an incident that's associated with him claiming to be divine and that this painting comes from 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. This uh, is a top-down view on the wonderful mosaics around the earliest known Christian church or prayer hall, it's been called, uh, near Modigo and dated to about 230 AD um, by various finds there. Now you can see in the middle of the room there's a sort of plinth that was the, uh, the table or the altar for celebrating communion. And around this table there are various mosaics and inscriptions that are very, very interesting. First of all, let me draw your attention to these fish in the centre of this mosaic here. Um, we know from early times, of course, that the fish was used as a Christian symbol uh, under persecution. You could draw the fish symbol and other people who were in on the secret would know that you were a fellow Christian because the, the Greek word for fish, which is ichthus, uh, is an acrostic, one of those words where each letter of the word stands for another word. And the acrostic stood for, when you translate it, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So it's interesting that there's some pictures of fish there and that there is that uh, plausible association. But even more interesting is this, and here's an enlarged frame-up of it, inscription here, which is from the uh, lady, probably, who had donated the communion table. And it says, the God-loving Acaptus has offered the table to the God, Jesus Christ. To the God, Jesus Christ. Uh, 230 AD. So there were at least some people who thought of Jesus as divine over 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, and you can show that just from looking at archaeology. And this, perhaps the crowning glory, uh, it's called the Alaximenos Graffito, which is Latin uh, graffito for graffiti. You'd never have guessed it, would you? It's some wall graffiti from near the Palatine Hill in Rome, and it's been dated to circa AD 200. And you have here a picture of a guy with a hand raised, looking up to a figure, human figure on a cross, but this figure on the cross has a donkey's head because he's made an ass of himself by getting himself crucified. He's clearly crucified there. And this scroll of writing here says... Uh, 
Alaxaminos worships his god. It's probably one Roman soldier taking the mick out of another Roman soldier who was a believer. What a stupid Christian believer worshipping some guy who got himself crucified. What an ass. Worships his god. 200 AD. So, the whole kind of Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code thesis can be completely blown out of the water, I think, simply from looking at archaeological finds uh, about Christian beliefs. And if there were people who held those beliefs back then, it of course begs the question of, well, where did they get these beliefs from? I'd argue that, well, most plausibly and straightforwardly, it would Plausibly, it would go back to Jesus himself. Um, look at a very early uh, extra-biblical writing like the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch who died torn apart by lions uh, in the Roman arena in about 108 AD. 108 AD. So this is very early. Uh, his kind of like second-generation Christian uh, and he's mentioned by various early church historians, Eusebius, Ignatius, martyred in 108 AD, according to him. Uh, he was supposedly a disciple of John the Apostle, and a couple of other sources say that um, the Apostle Peter was the one who appointed Ignatius as bishop at Antioch. So you can draw a nice little graph. So from last week, I love my graphs. Uh, we have down here the eyewitness generation to Jesus' life. Uh, including folks like Peter and John. Um, Philip the Evangelist and his daughters also mentioned in some of these sources in connection with the next generation of believers. And you have here Ignatius and other figures like Papias, Polycarp and Irenaeus. So this is the first eyewitness generation and these guys are kind of like second generation believers. And um, Ignatius... It's meant to have known personally Peter and John. Those were his real sources of information about Jesus. He may have known some of the Gospels then, but certainly, even if he did, he, in his letters, puts the emphasis on what he calls the, the, what's called the living and abiding voice of those who were eyewitnesses. Um, back then, people valued eyewitnesses much more than a written report. And he, uh, he wrote various letters to different Christian communities on the way uh, to be executed. And you can quote some very uh, interesting passages from them that very clearly show an uh, outline of the life of Christ and early, early Christian belief in a divine Christ. So remember, this is 107108 AD. Um, and he writes against the uh, so-called docetic denial of Jesus' humanity which is interesting in and of itself because it says that the, the, one of the earliest kind of deviant beliefs about Jesus that, that Christian bishops and so on were keen to, to, to put down, as it were, were people who were saying, well, of course Jesus was divine, but he wasn't really human. And Ignatius wants to say, well, no, of course he was divine, but he was also really human. Um, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ who was of David's line, born of Mary, truly born, ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly crucified and died, who was truly raised from the dead, the Father having raised him, who in like manner will raise us who believe in him. It's a very kind of creedal uh, type passage 
uh, from Ignatius. So you can look at all sorts of sources outside of the Bible, archaeological, written sources. And the trilemma that applies to Christ would also apply to these early Christians' belief in Christ and belief that he had claimed to be divine. Did they, those early Christians, simply make up the belief? Why would they do that? What did they get out of it? You know, things like being ripped apart by lions, you know, great benefits. Um, So the same kind of uh, reasoning would apply to them and drive you back to saying, really, isn't it most plausible that they had that view about Jesus because Jesus had that view about himself and had done something that they at least considered sufficiently convincing of that claim for them to be prepared to die horribly for believing it on the basis of what the eyewitnesses had told them. More directly, I particularly find impressive the incident at Jesus' trial. Because here he is, you know, on trial for his life in front of the, the, the state and religious authorities being one and the same thing at this time. And they're trying to trap him uh, into uh, condemning himself. And the high priest asks him, this is from Mark, uh, the earliest gospel, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And if there's kind of any time for a little bit of theological nuance, a little bit of liberal theology creeping in here, um, this would be it. But no, Jesus basically puts his foot well in it. He says, uh, I am, so Jesus, and, here we, let's um, go for broke, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his clothing in a traditional representation of grief why do we need any more witnesses he asked you've heard the blasphemy putting yourself in the place of God what do you think and they all condemn him as worthy of death because it's very clear that this speech from Jesus here about the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven is a direct reference back to the visionary passage in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And clouds of heaven is a traditional image of the glory of God in Jewish thought. Uh, He approached the ancient of days, i.e. God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All people's nation and men of every language worshipped him. Now you can only receive worship if you're God and yet this son of man figure receives worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that won't pass away and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. And on trial for his life, Jesus basically says, not only am I the Messiah, but I'm going to come in God's glory on his judgment throne and I will be judging you on the judgment day as the divine son of man figure that you ought to be worshipping. You've heard his blasphemy, crucify him. So there's lots of angles that you can come at this from, but all in all, it seems to me that these guys are right. William Lane Craig, when he says the historical Jesus deliberately stood and spoke in the place of God himself. From a variety of angles, says Gary Habermas, we learn that Jesus thought of himself as deity. 
which drives us back into the trilemma. What's the best explanation of those claims made by this person? Um, C.S. Lewis was famous for using this uh, argument uh, in various places. And uh, in an interview with Richard Dawkins, uh, Fanny Kiefer asked him, when you read some of C.S. Lewis's work, Christian communicator, a fertile mind, great intellect, why do you think someone who's a scholar like that is grabbed by faith? Given Dawkins' representation of faith, heads being unthinking people. Dawkins replies, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He was, after all, a professor of English. Oh, dear. And no doubt a very good one, throwing a bit of condescension. But when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the son of God. did not seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken, sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. So how does this fare as a rebuttal to the lunatic liar-lord argument? Well, notice, first of all, that Dawkins does seem to be pretty explicitly conceding that Jesus' claims would have been sincere rather than insincere. He said they were wrong, but sincere. Simply mistaken, sincerely and honestly mistaken, he says. Okay, so Jesus wasn't a liar. But someone who is not God, who's just a man, but is seriously, sincerely, honestly believing that they are God, not in some pantheistic new age where we're all God and part of the one, aren't we, anyway, but in the first century Palestinian Jewish God, the creator of the universe, the only one who can receive worship and forgive sins, kind of a way... seems quite a stretch to me not to describe such a person as out of touch with reality in a fairly significant way. Really? Sincerely and honestly mistaken? I love the way that Nicky Gumbel replies to this, uh, the guy behind the Alpha course. Uh, he says, the irony of the God delusion that Dawkins also makes this point in is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God. But Jesus wasn't deluded, even though he thought he was God. <laughs> that absolutely nails it. Um, Mike King puts it this way. He says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But why should Dawkins et al. and other new atheists don't engage any better with this argument? Why should Dawkins et al. not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not go for one of those other options? Well, quite clearly, says King, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. Now, of course, that depends on what weight you ascribe to that historical evidence and so on, and I refer you to last week's talks, and, and you know, there's lots to, to go into here, but I think the, the very fact that the, the best response Richard Dawkins can think to this argument is an obvious non-starter does seem to me to indicate that there's quite a lot of heft to this argument. Albeit, I'd be prepared to admit, not enough heft to convince someone on its own 
that the Christian understanding of Jesus is right, particularly if that person is starting from a fairly sceptical starting point. So how, how much this moves someone intellectually, as it were, is going to depend on a number of factors, including how sceptical they started out being. Um, but I do think that it's an argument that has some weight to it, that points in the direction of the Christian understanding of Jesus. Any uh, queries or questions or objections to, to that? people who don't really know a lot about church history, for example. Um, but this, this claim is just one of the bits of guff. There certainly was a, um, a refinement of the Christian creeds about Jesus' divinity and humanity produced by the Council, and you get the Nicene Creed. But that is not at all the same thing as saying, you know, Everyone thought of Jesus as just this great human prophet. And then some bishop at the Council of Nicaea said, hey guys, why don't we think of him as divine as well? And they all have a quick vote on it, and it passes. And then they say, okay, well guys, all we, we, us Christians, you know, we know we haven't believed in Jesus as divine up until now for 300 years. Um, but hey, this is what we've now decided, let's all do that. And everyone, you know, all the Christians say, yeah, that's a great idea, let's do that. It's just, it's just got so many holes in it that it's, it's ludicrous. Um, and as I say, you don't even need to go to the, the biblical documents to, to show that. Um, yeah. There is, of course, quite a long tradition stemming out of German 19th century philosophy. Um, there was a school of thinking that said that Christian beliefs about Christ were um, influenced by pagan mythology and were late additions to the original traditions about him, um, which is uh, uh, a view of things that was completely overturned by about 1963, so, <laughs> so my research tells me, although the new atheists still cling tenaciously to it, but they're about the only people who do of any viewpoint. Um, Yeah. Mm. One of the other things, sure. I was interested to see um, Crete's thing on putting the trilemma replying to, to the, mm. the new Christian spot. Um, what evidence do we have that there was mass persecution of the early church mm. and Christians in terms of the whole, you know? Nero dipping the Christians in wax and burning them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. What evidence do we have of that from outside of yeah. Christian sources? Because often when I've talked about it with people, they'll say, well, mm. yeah, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us uh, that. Yeah. But that's Christian and what, yeah. what non-Christian No, no, that, that's based on, on, on Roman historical sources. Um, 
my memory is going to fail me as to the precise ones, but I think it's Tacitus um, who reports that. Uh, so there are certainly non-Christian sources that, that report that. Um, but the argument doesn't, doesn't really need um, you to prove mass Christian persecution. As long as there, are, there is persecution provable uh, of people who were in a good position to know or believe that they knew the truth or falsity of the claims. This, it's not parallel to saying, well, you know, of course, you know, jihadist suicide bombers kill themselves for what they believe is true. You know, members of Al-Qaeda who kill themselves for the cause are clearly sincere, but that doesn't prove that what they believe is true. Well, no, it doesn't. It does prove that they're sincere, which only leaves you with certain other explanatory options, and the same thing applies. But also that the original disciples, certainly, were making empirical, historical truth claims that they were in a position to know whether or not they'd personally made it up or they really had had the experiences of, say, of meeting the resurrected Jesus so that they were sincere about that and so on. People like Ignatius were basing their belief on the eyewitness testimony of people that they knew who had known Jesus. Um, so it's a somewhat different circumstance than someone today dying for some theological belief that's, that they've been told is true but is not here and, you know, verifiable within their experience and so on. Um, of course, you have in, in Acts, it starts with the, the stoning of Stephen. Um, martyrdom of, of James, the brother of Jesus, is um, AD 62, 63. Um, that's reported from outside the Bible um, that's because that was, if you were here last week it's one of the arguments for dating the book of Acts before AD 62-63 because Paul is still in prison and hasn't been killed the martyrdom of James is not mentioned the destruction of the temple is not mentioned uh, and so on ok the, um, do keep me to time tell us when break is um, the second way is Jesus' miracles. It's kind of looking at an aspect of Jesus' deeds, and deeds reflect character. And deeds can reflect someone's self-image. You know, if you see someone throwing a bottle of champagne at the side of a ship, you'll be pretty sure that their self-image is of someone who has the authority to name ships. You know, they probably think they're the queen or something. Um, now, the figure of David Hume here looms large over this field still, particularly in more popular consciousness. Although, um, from my reading of the area, it would be fair to say that he is not... Um, all that in terms of the contemporary philosophical discussion about miracles. And he very famously uh, defined a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature and argued against, um, well, it's not quite sure whether he argued against the possibility of miracles or the believability of miracles, um, but either way, he argued against believing in them, um, therefore. And 
various people have pointed out that this definition is, is rather sort of it's a bit of a rhetorical trick because it makes it sound like um, were there to be a god who worked miracles he'd kind of be raping the world in order to do it it would be about violating the law uh, it would sort of carries these connotations of immorality and um, illegality uh, which uh, kind of stacks the deck a little bit I think a much uh, better definition of miracles if you were interested in one is uh, along these lines, which I nicked partially from C.S. Lewis, uh, an event wherein a created reality achieves an end that lies beyond its inerrant nature. That's best explained as caused, whether directly or indirectly, by a special application of God's willpower, rather than the way he generally applies his will in, say, upholding the existence of the universe and which therefore signifies something of God's character and or purposes in the way that an artist's art uh, reflects the artist. And that definition, I think, is much more precise and doesn't stack the decks uh, in the way that Hume's uh, did. Uh, this is Jesus from John fourteen eleven. He says, Believe me when I say I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. You might kind of read that as an appeal to the paradox of his character and claims. But then he goes on and says, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles himself, which is a great verse to put out to anyone who says, well, faith means believing without evidence, doesn't it? You say, well, not according to Jesus. It, it, it doesn't. <laughs> he says, believe because of the evidence uh, of the miracles, or the signs, as they're often called in, in John. So it's an illuminating and surprisingly well-attested category of Jesus' deeds that we could say simultaneously expresses his self-understanding as God's agent bringing in the kingdom of God and so on and provides independent validation of those claims. Because if Jesus is uh, ministry and his claims are being accompanied by divine miracles, that seems to kind of put the divine stamp of, of authority on his claims. So they sharpen the lunatic liar lord uh, paradox, but they also add an extra strand of evidence as well. And particularly interesting, in the light of various Old Testament backgrounds, from the Psalms and Exodus and Kings and places, Job, uh, Jesus' miracles say of calming the storm, uh, which is evidenced by early multiple eyewitness and embarrassing testimony. And here I'm drawing on all sorts of standard New Testament criteria for, for telling that something's a reliable passage, even if you don't trust the text in general. Um, have you got early witnesses? Have you got multiple witnesses? Is what they're claiming embarrassing to their own cause and so on? Or here's a uh, miracle of feeding 5,000, 6,000 people from very little, which again passes multiple tests of authenticity, historically speaking are best understood as kind of enacted claims to divinity when you look into the Old Testament background uh, where God is described as hovering over the, the waters in creation, say, or as food, feeding the children of Israel in the wilderness as they come out of the Exodus. Well, I think it's very interesting to look at Jesus and John the Baptist. This is Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting of John the Baptist. 
Um, the early Q tradition, which we mentioned last week, reports that when John the Baptist was languishing in Herod's jail, suffering rather embarrassing doubts about who Jesus was, he sent messages asking, uh, this is from Matthew 11, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? I'm beginning to have doubts that you're the Messiah, even though I proclaimed it earlier. And Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now that response echoes the messianic prophecies, and we'll get into prophecies later, of Isaiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. So Jesus was arguing in response to John's question, premise one, if someone does X kind of actions, then they are the Messiah, according to the scriptures. Two, I do X kind of actions. Three, conclusion, therefore, I am the Messiah. See what's going on there. Now, John had proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, and in several passages, Jesus identifies, Jesus identifies John as the messenger prophesied by Malachi 3.1 to go before the Messiah. I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way for me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And Lord is a term used for God. Now Matthew and Luke have passages that both apply the prophecy of Isaiah 43 to John. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there's an entailment to Jesus' reply to John's question Notice, first of all, he's argued that he is the Messiah, but there's an entailment as well. We add the premise, the Messiah is God, the Lord, a highway for our God. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is God. At least that's the claim that Jesus is making in response to John's question. I'm not saying this is an argument that proves that Jesus is God, I'm saying this argument shows that Jesus was claiming to be God in response to John's questions in very early sources. And he's making that claim on the basis of the fact that he's doing the miraculous things prophesied in the Old Testament, which warrant that claim. Uh, So here's a couple of quotes from some very uh, liberal New Testament scholars. Marcus Borg from the Jesus Seminar says, On historical grounds, it's virtually indisputable that Jesus was a healer and exorcist. Fellow Jesus Seminar, John Dominic Crossan says this, that miracles come into the tradition later as creative confirmation, that is lies, uh, rather than as original data, He says, such an assumption would be completely wrong. This is that whole general trend of scholarship towards saying, no, the Christians didn't make up their view about Jesus much later than his life, but these 
Christian views about Jesus go back to the original sources. The better explanation is just the opposite. Miracles were, at a very early stage, being washed out of the tradition and, when retained, were being very carefully interpreted. For example, Matthew, uh, drawing upon Mark's gospel as a source, when he does that and talks about miracles, he excludes or at least shortens Mark's miracle stories. And John's gospel doesn't mention any exorcisms. So actually in the sources, you have the earliest source mentioning the most and the more recent sources mentioning the least. They've been washed out of the tradition, not gradually massaged into it as people get further and further away from the historical memory of Jesus himself. So, Crossland says, in summary, Jesus as a miracle worker was very problematic and controversial, not only for his enemies, but even for his friends. He says it's part of the original tradition about him historically. Hey, fantastic chart. This chart, this is an exciting chart. Oh, yes. What you have here, miracles of Jesus that appear in more than one gospel... And in particular of interest is those that appear in, in John and in other Gospels, because John is literarily independent from the other Gospels, so it's independent attestation, as well as multiple. And so we've got miracles that are mentioned in all four Gospels, in, in three, including John, in all three synoptics, in two, Mark and Matthew, Mark and Luke, Matthew and Luke. And I've given the type of miracle here, so exorcisms, nature miracles like calming the waters, uh, healings, uh, reviving the dead, and the passages that are there. And if you go into this, some of these, of course, from some of those earlier datable sources like Q and so on. And when you lay it out like this, you notice that not only is every category of miracle that Jesus performs attested by multiple early independent sources every category of miracle but even specific miracles are attested by multiple early independent sources particularly up here and that testimony includes eyewitness reports John, Matthew, Q follows closely upon the reported events by comparison with other works of ancient history it's very interesting Uh, I talked about some of these standard criteria by which historians go to the New Testament and say, even if I don't think this is a generally reliable source of information, there might well be some nuggets of good information in there. How can I kind of tell the particularly reliable bits? Well, those are bits that passed criteria like embarrassing or enemy attestation. Um, Mark and Q include the accusation from Jesus' opponents that he was able to exercise demons because he was in league with the devil. So his opponents within the culture didn't say, you're faking it, you're not doing exorcisms, nothing to see here. They said, "Oh, yes, of course you're doing it, but you're doing it by the power of the devil. It's not only doubly attested, it's rather unlikely as a fabrication from Christian writing this gospel later because it's a rather embarrassing uh, claim to make. 
As N.T. Wright puts it, the church did not invent the embarrassing charge that Jesus was in league with Beelzebub, but charges like that aren't advanced unless they're needed to explain some quite remarkable phenomena. And you can even look at um, sources outside of the Bible. Um, Josephus, the Babylonian Talmud, a pagan philosopher called Celsus in 180 AD, um, wrote that it was by magic that Jesus was able to do the miracles which he appeared to have done, and so on. Uh, continuing the tradition of trying to explain them away, but, but in alternative supernatural mode, rather than saying, oh no, it was just made up, or no, he didn't really do it. So again, there's lots of different angles that you can come at Jesus' miracles uh, from within and without the New Testament that all seem to point uh, rather strongly in the same direction. And again, that argument on its own probably isn't enough to convince anyone that Jesus, who Christians think he is. But in addition to the lunatic liar lord argument, if you didn't start off particularly sceptical about it, you know, any questions on that little section? Ah, okay. Um, Q, it's, we don't actually have it, it's, it's a theory about one of the sources behind the Gospels that we have. You have um, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, Mark is usually thought to be the earliest Gospel, and then Matthew and Luke, you notice, draw on a lot of Mark. A lot of Mark ends up in Matthew and Luke. But there's also material that's common to Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. And that's often thought to be a source that both Matthew and Luke drew upon, therefore, because it's the same material. And some scholars will argue that it might be a written source, perhaps even written by Matthew himself, who as a tax collector would have known shorthand, and uh, disciples of rabbis did take notes of teaching at the time and so on. But we haven't actually got it, so it's, uh, a, it's a hypothesis to explain the, the source, but... Therefore, it's often thought by scholars to be earlier than the Gospels, and so the earlier the information, historically speaking, the better. So if you can draw on cue, that's a good thing to do when arguing historically. Grand. Oh, how's break? He's on two and three, two and three jobs, so they're going to stop between that relations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Marvellous. Okay, the third way. And I'm kind of picking out a particularly significant miracle here. Um, you could include this in Jesus' miracles, but I think it, it deserves its own treatment, Jesus' resurrection. And uh, here's one of my lovely graphs. Uh, and I've paralleled here uh, four of probably the earliest sources of information in the New Testament about Jesus' uh, passion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, as we'll see in a moment, St. Paul quotes from a very, very early Christian creedal passage. Mark, uh, and a lot of scholars will say that in the passion narrative in Mark, is drawing upon a, a source that's earlier than the composition of Mark's gospel, which drew upon um, Peter's uh, teaching and memories about Jesus 
and it's often thought that Mark combined Peter's information with an earlier um, source of information that related to the passion narratives. And then two passages from Acts, Peter's Pentecost sermon and Paul's sermon in Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And again, um, in Acts, a lot of scholars will say these uh, kind of passages in Acts uh, go back to earlier sources uh, because when you try and translate it from the Greek that Acts is written in, they seem to translate very more naturally uh, into Aramaic, which was the, the language of Jesus and the Jews at that time. And that uh, gives an indication that what, what Luke has done is that he's translated into his Greek uh, book uh, earlier sources that he's drawing on. And he says at the beginning of his gospel, doesn't he, that he's drawing on earlier sources and Acts is the direct sequel to his gospel. So it generally would be thought that these are all uh, very early sources of data about Jesus. And you can see that they all tell the same four-part summary of the story. Christ died, Jesus breathed his last, put him to death by nailing him to a cross, asked Pilate to have him executed. He was buried, uh, Joseph bought linen, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb. David died and was buried in his tomb, is here to this day, which implies from Peter that Jesus' body is not here to this day in his tomb. Uh, Acts 13, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. He was raised, um, which would have implied leaving an empty tomb. He has risen. God has raised this Jesus to life, but God raised him from the dead. And finally, he appeared um, from Mark. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, says the angel. Um, We are all witnesses of the fact, says Peter. For many days he was seen by those who travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, says Paul. So you get this died, buried, raised, seen um, pattern in these four independent sources, early sources. What I'm going to do here is take what's called a minimal facts approach to arguing for the resurrection. I'm just going to build a case on some bits of evidence that pass multiple standard criteria for being good history and that therefore represent a majority viewpoint on scholars who look at the area. But it's time to have a little break for tea and so on, so I'll introduce you to the data and the argument from it after break. <laughs> <laughs> Things that are so well evidenced by passing through multiple historical criteria for being reasonable things to believe that a majority of scholars in the area would believe them, Um, either the huge consensus, and particularly you want to look as well for people who are coming at this from a different worldview, so that lots of um, atheist New Testament scholars would sign up uh, to these as bits of data that we should be working with as well. Um, It's true to say that the emptiness of the tomb 
It's probably the one that has the least consensus, uh, but it still has a majority opinion on it, and I think it is very well um, evidenced. It passes so many different criteria. Um, different apologists will work with slightly different lists of facts. Gary Habermas, who really originated this kind of approach, he's the, uh, the guy that came up with this um, minimal facts apologetic, um, used to work with 12 facts, and then he whittled it down and said, I can still, I can still mount a good argument if you give me five facts. And uh, Michael uh, Lacona, uh, who is um, someone who studied under Habermas, has just come out with a massive new book with Apollos um, on the resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. Um, he uses three bits of data and says, I can still mount an argument for the resurrection. But I'm going to give you four that um, represent those four reoccurring themes that we had from the four early sources. Um, Jesus died on a cross. His body was buried in a tomb. Uh, that tomb was later found to be empty. And various individuals and groups of people then had experiences in which they sincerely believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them. Those are the facts. What's the best explanation of the facts then comes in? I mentioned briefly earlier 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 9. This is a hugely significant passage uh, in this context um, where Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, uh, writes about, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that, and then he quotes from this early Christian creedal passage. And I put the passage in white and what seems to be uh, his framing and uh, an interpolation that he puts in uh, in yellow. Uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, uh, and then to the twelve and that he appeared to more, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And then Paul seems to add in parenthesis, as it were, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, i.e. there are still eyewitnesses around that you could go and question if you wanted to. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So this is Paul claiming to be an eyewitness giving his testimony here. As to one abnormally born, because it was out of the, the sequence, for I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now this qualifies as certainly very early and eyewitness testimony. Um, given that Jesus was crucified in AD 30 or 33, there's some dispute. 1 Corinthians, that uh, we're quoted from here, was written by Paul circa AD 54, and that's a very uh, nailed-down date. And Paul is reiterating teaching. He says, I, he's saying, when I was with you before, I passed on to you what I had received. You already know this stuff. Um, that he passed on, and that would have been about circa AD 50, when he was with the Corinthians before, that he gave them this information. So 30... 50, 20 years. And scholars generally reckon that Paul probably received this uh, creedal material 
in Jerusalem from Peter and James in about AD 35, at which time, of course, they would have had to already formulate this standard formulation of the data. So that takes us back to within five years, and there are several scholars who will say this this data goes back to within months of the resurrection uh, claim. So James D.D. Dunn, very famous New Testament scholar, uh, in his uh, Jesus Remembered series, says this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. Uh, Pinchas Lapid, who's a Jewish New Testament scholar, says that 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, quote, may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. So here's uh, N.T. Wright summarizing the consensus of scholarship about the data. He says, historical investigation brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone they were convinced was this same Jesus, bodily alive, though in a new transformed fashion. This is uh, Rembrandt's painting of... uh, doubtful Thomas actually sticking his finger in the side of Christ, which he actually doesn't do in the the Gospels, it's artistic license. Um, What's the best explanation of the facts? Let me summarise with N.T. Wright again. He says, the historian may and must say that all other explanations for why Christianity arose and took the shape it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians themselves offer that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The sort of reasoning historians characteristically employ that's inference to the best explanation. Which explanation has the greatest explanatory power and scope and the least number of ad hoc uh, elements that you have to posit that aren't independently verified and so on? Points strongly towards the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You can put it like this. Um, think in terms of Occam's famous razor. This is William of Occam. Uh, as a monk, so he's quite familiar with using razors, as you can see. And you could express Occam's razor by saying, always pick the simplest adequate explanation for something when you've got competing explanations. Um, so, you know, the window's broken, there's a series of muddy footprints coming in from the garden across the, the carpet, um, the safe is open and the money's all gone. Well, there's obviously a whole lot of ways that you could explain that. Okay. Um, Martians did it. Um, there were two thieves, one of whom walked very carefully in the footprints of the other. There was one thief. Okay, which is the simplest adequate explanation one thief will do very nicely until such point as you get a bit of data that that explanation doesn't cover plausibly at which time you might then move to a more complicated more adequate explanation now the resurrection the idea that Jesus really was risen from the dead is clearly an adequate explanation for the data that we've got If Jesus did rise from the dead, you would expect to see the data that we have, historically speaking. 
So it's an adequate explanation. And I would argue that there is no simpler and or more adequate explanation of that data. Um, Anthony Flew agrees. This is a quote from Flew when he was an atheist. He did become a, a minimal kind of theist later on in life, but not a Christian. But this is a quote from him when he was still an atheist. Uh, he says, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened at the resurrection. He would, of course, say, but of course it wasn't a resurrection because miracles can't happen, because there's no God. And it's interesting that when he, later on in life, came to believe in a God, he said, well, you know, you can't limit omnipotence except by logical impossibility and rising from the dead. It's not logically impossible. If you come at this data, he said, with a belief in some kind of a God in hand, it does become more likely. The probably leading contender for uh, an explanation is the idea of hallucinations of some kind. That the disciples, they didn't lie about it, they sincerely had these experiences and so on, but they were deluded in some way. Uh, Craig says the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to explain the empty tomb. You might hallucinate visions of Jesus in some sort of post-death grief or something. You know, these kind of proposals get put forward. But how come the tomb's empty and everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, is there to check that out? Secondly, the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. Resurrection is a very particular Jewish theological notion. For someone in the ancient world, visions of the deceased, which of course they they knew about, believed in, would have thought some of them were vertical, visions of the deceased are not evidence that the person is alive bodily. They're rather evidence that they're dead. So why didn't the disciples on hallucinating vision of Jesus, say something like, ah, we've had a vision of the dead Jesus in the bosom of Abraham beside God. And actually, although we thought that he was a complete loser because he got crucified under God's curse, this vision shows that really God does accept him and there must have been something more going on than we've understood yet. But why go to... He was resurrected. Of course, they believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the end of human history, when everyone would be resurrected at the same time, when the curtain, final curtain draws, as it were. They didn't believe that anyone would be resurrected individually within history. Now, the revivifications that Jesus performed in the Gospels are not resurrections. People, you know, Lazarus is brought back to life to die again, mortal. This is, we're talking about the Jewish concept of a resurrection type of existence, which is what they said they'd met. So it doesn't seem to have a particular explanatory power just to say they had a hallucination. Um, C.S. Lewis makes a good point, I think, about the explanatory power of this hypothesis when he says any theory of hallucination 
breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions, this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. If you're going to subconsciously produce some kind of vision of Jesus because of your grief or your guilt or because you're Peter or whatever, you'd think that you would recognize the vision that you're producing of Jesus rather than walk a long way on the road, sit down to supper with him and then go, oh, good grief. (laughs) Uh, And these reports of people initially not recognizing the resurrected Jesus come from uh, Luke 24, 13, 31, John 2015 and 21, 4. So that's Luke and John, synoptic and non-synoptic gospels as well, which is independent testimony. Bar Ehrman, who's an agnostic scholar you might have heard of, uh, in a debate with William Lane Craig, it's a very good debate with William Lane Craig that you can find on the internet, um, says this, the reason that the resurrection makes sense to Bill is because he's a believer in God. Uh, And so, of course, God can act in the world. Why not? Well, that presupposes a belief in God. A few responses. Well, first of all, it's good that Bart Ehrman is is clearly recognising that if you approach the data about the resurrection with a belief in a God in hand, it makes perfect sense to believe that Jesus really was risen from the dead. So he's kind of admitting that this is a good argument for a Christian understanding of Jesus if you're a theist, but not yet a Christian theist. But actually, when he says that presupposes a belief in God, I think he goes a bit too far. Actually, I think it presupposes theism or agnosticism or a non-dogmatic atheism. Even if you're saying, well, I think it's unlikely that there's a God, but I think it's possible that there's a God, don't you also therefore have to say, therefore I think it's possible that miracles occur, and I have to be at least open to the possibility that there might be enough evidence that a miracle occurred on a particular occasion to convince me that the best explanation is a miracle and that therefore there is a God. Um, It will obviously take more evidence to convince someone who says it's unlikely that there's a God than someone who says, well, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, it's 50-50 for me, than someone who says, well, I think there's some kind of a God, but I'm not quite sure what it's like. But it's only a really, really dogmatic affirmation of atheism that could rule out the possibility of of, uh, explaining the data in terms of miracles. So his concession doesn't really go far enough. As uh, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig write, uh, given a God who created the universe, miracles are evidently possible. Only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing atheism to be true could one be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles? And here's uh, Anthony Flew. Certainly, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely. Um, He even included in his book, um, There is a God, 
which he um, published in uh, 2004 with Roy Abraham Varghese. He included an appendix in the book which was uh, an argument for the resurrection by N.T. Wright. And he introduced this appendix saying, basically, my shift of philosophical viewpoint has now opened me up to considering this question. I don't believe in the, the resurrection yet, but Christianity is the religion claimed to beat. It's the market leader, basically. It's the miracle claim that's got the most evidence going for it. And one ought to be open to exploring this issue, given that I now believe in a God, I ought to be open to this. And I do find this, a, a, you know, I think there's some weight to this argument, but it hasn't convinced me yet. I've only just started looking into this kind of thing. So, there we go. Anything on the, the resurrection and miracles and so on. And remember, I think, given that you're approaching this data in the context of the arguments of the trilemma and Jesus' miracles and his claims about himself, that kind of religious context makes it much more plausible to think that maybe if there is a God, he might raise this guy from the dead in vindication of his claims to show that they were true. That would be a big, you know, that would be a big thumbs up. <laughs> Particularly given that, you know, the Jews thought that being crucified meant being under the curse of God and he was a failed Messiah and so on. Their beliefs about Jesus were crushed. You know, they were all like running away and denying him three times before Roosters Crow and going home, going back to fishing and things before. It's only, according to the earliest sources, their belief that they'd met a risen Jesus that turned everything around for them and started them thinking, oh, good grief. Actually, there is something to this guy after all. Fulfilled prophecy. I get a few more charts and numbers. And, and numbers, let me say this up front, numbers are not really my thing. I like words. And although math is meant to be all logical and everything, and, and it is, I just don't sit well with numbers. So knowing this about myself, I worked with a PhD in mathematics uh, on this chapter. He's a friend of mine from Southampton and uh, got her to run through the maths uh, alongside me. Um, this is Victor Stenger, one of the new atheists, in his book, The New Atheism. And he says that to validate a spiritual experience, all that has to happen is that the person returning from such an experience reports some fact that she could not have known ahead of time. This could be the successful prediction of some future event. Um, I think I'd want to be a bit more stringent than that, actually. I'd want to ask some questions about um, how implausible actually is it that they could have just guessed it correctly from present trends or whatever. Um, how unlikely is this uh, event that they're predicting uh, and so on. Um, let's start, even if we're sort of back of the envelope numbers, and as you see, it's inevitably kind of, a lot of it is back of the envelope kind of numbers, but you just try and be conservative with them, but at least to put some kind of numbers on the thing, and maybe we would require more than just one successful prediction, maybe quite a series of successful and really quite unlikely predictions would be what we should require. So I'm going to be a bit more stringent than Victor Stenger here. 
Thomas V. Morris says in his fantastic book, Making Sense of It All, Pascal and the Meaning of Life, a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess, a shot in the dark that just happened to hit its target. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person is able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just ascribing it all to luck. At a certain point, we have to hypothesize some explanation for success, some connection responsible for the otherwise highly improbable accuracy. Uh, those of you who are here in the first week might recognize um, the criteria of so-called specified complexity underlying this argument, that which we apply to the fine-tuning uh, of the universe in week one. Now, I was given... Uh, a wonderful structure for my chapter on this by stumbling across this passage from 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11 uh, during a Bible study one night whilst I was writing the book uh, and I was very much oh thank you Lord that's very useful I will structure my chapter according to this verse um, this is uh, 1 Peter and he says some prophets told how kind God would be to you and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved the Spirit of Christ was in them and was telling them how Christ would suffer and would then be given great honor. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. So he's making a number of rather specific claims about what the Old Testament prophecies about Christ uh, say. That the Old Testament predicts when the Messiah would be active who the Messiah could be, particularly in terms of his origins and his actions, that the Messiah would suffer in the cause of salvation, the specific manner, even, of the Messiah's suffering, and that having suffered, the Messiah would be given great honor, at least. I think there are deeper hints than that as well. So there's a number of different categories of prediction that you can look at here. And here's some rather small text prints of them. Now, it's been an argument that's fascinated me for a long time, and you'll find it um, particularly in places like Josh McDowell's um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and so on. But I always had a, a bit of a niggling uh, kind of worry about those kind of arguments because it seemed to me that when I looked up the passages that people like Josh McDowell referred to, some of them were very clearly messianic prophecies in the original context. But some of them weren't. Some of them seem to be being read very much with the benefit of hindsight and kind of shoehorned in as, as a prophecy. And also, in terms of thinking about criteria of authenticity, I, I wanted not just to have one New Testament reference that said, here, this shows that this prophecy was fulfilled because here's a report from Matthew that says it was fulfilled or something. I was like, well, what if we limit ourselves to prophecies that are pretty obviously messianic prophecies in the original context and that have multiple attestation as to their fulfillment. So let's try and be a bit more stringent uh, about this whole process. And let's give some very conservative numbers to the fulfillment of each of these prophecies. Um, 
where the Messiah would come from, his origins in terms of coming through Abraham, the particular tribe of Judah, from the seed of Isaac um, and Jacob, that he'd be a firstborn son, um, that he'll come from the stone of Jesse, that he'd be born in a particular town in Bethlehem um, from the line of David and so on, and give some fairly conservative numbers to these, and of course he then multiply these independent factors together to get a figure at the end. And uh, I work out here eight prophecies about the Messiah's origin that are multiply attested as to their fulfillment, uh, sometimes multiply predicted, as you can see. And I work it out conservatively at one chance in 17 million. And then we move on to four prophecies about the kind of actions that the Messiah would do. And uh, just, again, multiply tested here and a total odds of one chance in 10 million for those four prophecies. Now the odds of just those 12 prophecies about his origins and actions the odds against them being fulfilled in Jesus in someone's life by chance is about one chance in 170 million million. Quite long odds. And of course in the book I go into arguments about well, couldn't he have deliberately fulfilled certain prophecies and so on? And I try and argue about that and exclude ones. And actually I say, well, there are some that he pretty obviously does deliberately fulfill, like riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. He enacts his claim to messiahship by deliberately fulfilling that prophecy. And so I don't count that prophecy in these statistics. So I'm trying to be careful here. Now... About his suffering, of course, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are extremely powerful and interesting passages to look at. And if you take 15 particular aspects of Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and you assign a pretty generous, I reckon, one in four chance for each fulfillment. So one in four people in Jesus' day were fulfilling each of, you know, these are very low... um, the combined odds of someone fulfilling all 15 in their life, as Jesus did, is one chance in 1,074 million. So let's multiply those all together, remembering we've just looked at certain categories, not all of the categories here. We can conservatively estimate that Jesus had about one chance in 180... No, let's get this... (laughs) Uh, 182,580. <laughs> What's that number? <laughs> yeah, 182,580 million, million, million. Uh, that's uh, about 1 in 1.8 to the power of 10 to the power of 23. For those who like these things in powers, or fulfilling just these 27 prophecies by chance. Um, Let me give you a context for those of you who, like me, don't really grapple with numbers and powers of to the power of very well. Um, Those odds are comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all the grains of sand on planet Earth. Those are pretty long odds. 
Thomas V. Morris puts it, a series of prophecies made by different people at different times, culminating in a single fulfillment by a life of so remarkable person as Jesus, cries out for an explanation. The most reasonable explanation is that God was involved in the prophecy and fulfillment, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation in this context from the Jewish religious tradition. So, lunatic lie lord argument, Jesus' miracles sharpening that and independently attesting them. The resurrection is a particularly significant miracle that attests that. Jesus' fulfillment of detailed Old Testament prophecy at very long odds, conservatively estimated. And we'd have one more to go, but anything on Old Testament prophecy? Some of the on Alpha in particular, and with other things we talked about, there is the, the claim that no other world religion or faith has any authenticated prophecy in its mm. holy writings. Mm. Is that a is that a valid statement that you are aware of? And if so, mm. how does that whole thing of bringing prophecy in? Where does that fit in terms of a really good... I mean, I, I love mm. the sand thing. I think it's a brilliant help thing, you know, that actually if Jesus is real, that's your odds. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. But how, does, how, do we, how do we work that into a discussion with friends, that kind of thing? So far as the, the thing about the Judeo-Christian mm. being the only one with these detailed prophecies that you could plausibly claim are fulfilled. As far as I know, that's true. People in writing about prophecies tend to use a contrast set of, say, um, self-proclaimed psychics and mediums. Um, And there's been studies on predictions of famous psychics and so on um, that generally show that they have a... uh, a success rate that's uh, worse than chance, interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, all that are very clearly um, made, actually, when you look into the details, uh, made after the event rather than beforehand. But here, you know, you're, you're looking at Old Testament books that you can securely date from hundreds of years before Jesus from the Dead Sea Scrolls and things. Um, so they're made a long time in advance. Um, and again, as I say, I'm only looking at ones that are multiply attested as to their fulfillment and so on and calculate the odds conservatively and it seems to be a lot better than chance uh, odds. Um, so that does... I, I'm not aware of any other um, tradition that would make a comparable kind of argument um, let alone one that would have comparably good evidence for mounting that kind of, of argument. Um, certainly within the, 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 the Islamic tradition, the miracle is meant to be the, the Quran itself. Um, uh, there are no other um, uh, miracle evidences, as it were. There are some stories about uh, Muhammad flying places quickly on horses and things that date from a couple of hundred years, I think it is, after 
his lifetime and so on, but there's certainly no contemporaneous um, reports um, like that. Um, so as far as I know, yeah. In terms of working it, it, it into, the, into the arguments, um, it's perhaps one that's very naturally worked into arguments with, with uh, Jewish, non-Christian Jewish friends. Um, I, I would start by simply turning, giving people a photocopy of, of a couple of passages, you know, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Who, who does this remind you of and when do you think these were written? And they might get a shock <laughs> when they say, well, it's obviously Jesus, isn't it? And you're saying, well, no, it's dated hundreds of years before he existed. How do you explain that? Um, that's, I just simply start with that kind of stone in the shoe, as it were. I don't have a great deal to say on experience here, although I've got a whole chapter on it in the book. Partly because it covers a lot of territory. Um, There's another useful quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Christians have always claimed from the very beginning that though Jesus is no longer walking around Palestine uh, and available for us to meet him and get to know him in that sense, he is indeed with us in a different sense uh, and that we can indeed get to know him in a manner not wholly unlike the way we get to know other people. Um, And I particularly wanted to put this in the book because it brings the book around from a historical, philosophical investigation about some events 2,000 years ago and says, actually, this has a contemporary relevance to people's lives here and now. The Christians don't just claim that Jesus is someone that you can know about, but someone you can know. Um, And there's obviously lots of personal um, anecdotal testimony um, to that effect and actually I then try and break up um, uh, religious experience centred around Jesus into a number of independent categories uh, some of which is uh, independently publicly verifiable and some of which uh, is not um, but still testimony uh, from people uh, counts I think Again, you know, anyone makes a claim you start applying the you know, are they just making it up? Are they deluded? Does it really seem to work out in their lives? What's the best explanation of the change that I've seen in them and so on? So in terms of these different categories of religious experiences, you can say, again, you can mount a kind of cumulative argument from Christian religious experience combined with the principles of credulity and testimony. That's basically the idea that trust is fundamental and that it's always reasonable to start out trusting unless you have a reason not to trust. Because if you do the reverse and you, you say, well, I'm not going to trust anything until I've got a reason to trust, then, of course, you mistrust any reason given you for trusting and any reason given you for trusting that, and so on and so on, and you'll never believe anything. Um, the close analogy between religious and perceptual experience, and I've got a whole list of sort of eight or nine points of analogy between everyday empirical experiences like seeing and hearing uh, and uh, religious spiritual experience. Um, and given that we inevitably believe that our physical sense is generally speaking reliable, uh, a religious sense that is very closely analogous and not in any obvious way hugely disanalogous to that kind of experience should also be extended the benefit of the doubt, as it were. 
the best explanation argument from the spiritual transformation of those who live as Jesus' disciples. It's not just people who say, I'm a Christian because I once got dunked in some water as a baby, uh, sprinkled, or because, you know, I go Christmas and Easter, or my family are this, or because I'm a... someone who was brought up in England and we, you know, the Queen is head of the church and but people who seriously make an attempt to take the yoke of Christ upon themselves um, and when people do that from a, a position of having come from not doing that and you see um, sometimes some very radical, powerful changes in their lives and you have to ask the question you know, is that all just the power of positive thinking? Um, or is there something more to it than that? Particularly since they would be in all apparent sincerity claiming, this wasn't me, man, I couldn't have done this myself, uh, and so on. And then there's public evidence of changed lives is joined by publicly available evidence concerning miraculous words of knowledge, and I give some examples in the book. Angelic demonic encounters, and I give some examples from psychiatrists and psychologists who don't believe in demonic possession and so on, who become convinced that it's real by their clinical experience, which seems to me the most powerful testimony to that kind of reality. Um, And then physical healings closely associated with prayers offered in Jesus' name. And again, I give some uh, testimony from sources that I consider to be uh, trustworthy, sane and sensible sources, um, particularly the philosopher J.P. Moreland and so on. And again, I'm building up a, a, a cumulative weight of evidence from all of these to say that there is at least good reason to think that Jesus is having uh, an input and effect into people's lives and into reality here and now in the kind of way that Christians expect given given their theological beliefs uh, about him. Um, So, I mean... I can't cover that in the space of a chapter, and obviously all of these are things that you could take an entire book over. And in the case of Angelic Demonic Encounters, I did take an entire book over it called The Case for Angels that I published some years ago. Um, and you can certainly look into uh, entire books uh, written on the uh, epistemology of religious experience and so on. But I kind of try and draw and bring together some of the threads of these kind of arguments just to, to bring the argument into the present day and saying you're not just wrestling with a historical enigma here. If Christians are right about Jesus, you're actually wrestling with a person here. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful passage in one of his essays where he said, you know, you, comes that time when you, you kind of realise you've been playing at religion, and then you suddenly realise there's someone in the room with you. And you, you've moved from dealing with an intellectual issue to realising that you're faced not with an intellectual puzzle but with a person who demands your trust. Uh, And I'm trying to bring people to that point of uh, seriously uh, engaging with with Jesus, not just with arguments about Jesus uh, by the end of the book. Whilst, of course, saying to the reader, look, how far these arguments have moved you, will depend in part on how good you think the, the inference is, the explanations from the data is, how strong you think the data is, which worldview you brought to the exploration. But if you think there's any weight to any of these arguments, you should at least have moved somewhat 
towards the Christian view from where you started out at the beginning if you didn't already have the Christian view. So I'm kind of leaving it in that, you know, I can't say it in the end of books. Right, okay, folks, now we've seen all the evidence and we, we all agree, don't we, that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, uh, try and leave it in the, the intellectually responsible hands of the reader to make their own judgment call. So there's my five ways for understanding Jesus. Uh, I, th- this is based on a phrase from Peter Kreeft, who we've mentioned a couple of times today, who... Um, I love his explanation of the, the meaning of what it means to understand something. It's a bit of a pun, but he says to understand something is to stand under its authority as reality to determine what you believe about it. That it's reality that's calling the shots. And our job as intellectual um, truth seekers is to, think, is to conform ourselves to the way truth is, the way reality is rather than to try and shape reality to fit our preconceptions uh, and so on. Uh, So that's why I get this understanding Jesus kind of pun from. Any final questions or comments? Whilst I draw your attention to the need to take away free bits of paper, um, books whilst they're here for the last week to buy. I will eventually get around to putting these talks onto my podcast channel on the church. Likewise, is going to put some stuff up and some links. And, um, yeah. I've really enjoyed the full week, so it's been a bit of a uh, whistle-stop tour through a classical apologetical approach, but uh, we've touched on some central issues, and I hope that it's been encouraging to you and uh, useful uh, to you and yours. So thank you for giving me the opportunity and for coming. (laughs) Should we just thank Peter for yeah. Any final questions to pose to him? It's good to get right. Yeah, sure. It's it's uh, the passage is one Peter chapter three, verse fifteen. And he says, Always be ready to give an answer to those who um, ask you to give a reason for the hope that you, you have. And it's the word translated as give an answer is apologia. Uh, it comes from the Greek legal system. It's what your lawyer would do in giving a rep- response speech, a defense speech. Uh, it literally means a, a word back, but it comes from that legal kind of <coughs> argumentative context. So 1 Peter 3.15 is where it comes from. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, a really good argument in the way you've had all the five different ways. Mm. You didn't necessarily singularly point to the truth, but collectively you could mm. use them to point to the truth. Yeah. Um, in regards to number four about the fulfilling prophecies, mm. I mean, I've always found that one to be particularly uh, persuasive mm. in the sense that it's perhaps one of the most sort of physical, concrete proofs there is, and it's I guess it's also very mm. important to remember that. The prophecies they didn't just end there, they have to be yeah. fulfilled now and they need to be fulfilled. Yes. I mean, could you, could you possibly argue that that in itself is a singular, independent argument? That the, the, the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, you well, mean, all the. Idea that fulfilling prophecies in general. Yes, I mean, you, I, I think you could use any of these five arguments as a standalone argument. Um, it's just that I think they 
become more powerful when used jointly together because the, the strength of a, of a cumulative argument is not simply the addition, as it were, of the individual strength of the individual arguments. In a cumulative case, it's not 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 5 points worth of argumentative strength, as it were. Um, it's more than that, because the more independent lines of evidence you have, the less, uh, the less likely it becomes, as it were, that you'd have these independent lines of evidence all pointing to a false conclusion. So the more, more, the more independent lines of evidence pointing to the same conclusion you have, the stronger the overall case becomes. The more different types of argument there are as well. It's like in, in a court case, um, if you had an eyewitness testimony, that's great. If you had multiple eyewitness testimonies, that would be a good thing. But even more powerful would be to have an eyewitness testimony, fingerprint evidence, DNA evidence, um, uh, hair uh, evidence, to have different types of evidence uh, seems to be a, a stronger thing because, you know, one of the chances is that all of these different types of evidence are all going wrong, whereas, you know, may, maybe someone got to all of the witnesses. But did someone got to the witnesses and the DNA evidence and the, the fingerprint lab and the, you know. So the, the cumulative power of the arguments when put together is more than the sum of the parts, uh, as it were. Which is not to say that there's no you know, point in using any of them individually. I just think when you start building them up and each one starts soaking up a bit of your prior scepticism, every time you meet a new argument, you're now slightly more open to that argument than you were to the previous one and then you start taking into account the fact that the, all these independent lines of evidence are pointing in the same direction it becomes even more powerful yeah. I find it most persuasive because it's foundational to a lot of the other arguments as in a lot of the, the eyewitness reports mm. of Jesus and his statements about himself in the first argument mm. are in the Bible and the veracity of the Bible mm. is proven or demonstrated through the prophecies that it, and the claims about Jesus. So it's yes, yeah. The, the one is they're kind of mutually reinforcing, aren't they? Yeah. Um, in that sense, it's like a chain. It's not a it's not a series of leaky buckets, as it were. It's more like a chainmail. Um, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you.